0: Uh, almost one month ago, I was preparing for the busiest Sunday uh, I have had at this church since, I think, uh, coming on in 2019, where I was going to teach in our theological equipping class. I was going to preach on Sunday morning, and then we had a member meeting that night, and I was going to roll out and explain this whole new idea we have for community groups, how we're going to center the community of this church around the Word because we're a people of the Word and we're people of prayer who cry out to our God, all these things. And then my wife, Claudia very selfishly uh, decided to go into labor. And I was like, can't you just wait? I got a busy Sunday. But no, apparently it had to happen then. Uh, So thankfully we have uh, been blessed uh, by incredibly gifted people like Tim and Lee, Tim in particular, who can prep a sermon overnight and preach a very, uh, very good one. But since then, uh, for the past month, my life and Claudia's life has been flooded with exhaustion with, uh, you know, crying, mostly mine, but sometimes my infants as well, Uh, diapers, pain, right? Flooded with pain, but so tied to this pain is one of the greatest blessings that you could be given in this world, a beautiful little baby, little Wesley Lawson, who, I mean, all of you who have walked by have seen just the most beautiful child God has ever created, right, tied to all of this difficulty, all of this exhaustion. You're going to hear slurred speech in this sermon because of that exhaustion. Tied to that pain is an incredible blessing. And we're going to see that same sort of tying today. It's that same sort of tension as we look at the mission of God, proclaiming I'm tired. I cry more and I'm tired. Proclaiming the glorious name that you have breath to proclaim is going to be very closely tied to pain and difficulty when you go and proclaim that glorious name in a very, very rebellious world. So we are continuing to walk through Matthew 10. We've been walking through Matthew for Uh, Over a year now, bit by bit, because we want to just mine the gold of God's word. But there's some difficulty, you know. There's some perhaps some negatives in in walking through the scriptures so uh, uh, succinctly. As you see, you sometimes can, as they say, miss the forest for the trees. So as we've been looking at these specific trees, I want to zoom out and kind of remind us where we've been in Matthew, so we know how we're kind of navigating this very long chapter. We've seen in Matthew beginning, it begins with this kind of anticipation for this savior, this lost world that has been longing for the son of David, for the king that is going to sit on the throne forever and bring perfect peace and bring perfect salvation and forgive the world its sins and save us from ourselves and from the prince of the power of darkness. There's this great announcement, this great anticipation. John the Baptist comes and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent, And we see Jesus comes in Matthew 4, and the king shows and declares the kingdom's arrival. The king is here, and everywhere Jesus, the king, goes, his kingdom follows. And then we had Matthew 5 through 7, this big, big giant sermon, often called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus preaches on the theme of what is life in the kingdom like? He's the king, he's coming, he's bringing his kingdom, the kingdom of God, with him. So what is life in the kingdom like? What are the people of the kingdom, those who follow him, like? And then for the past two chapters in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, we've seen him go display the power of the kingdom. He's not just someone who speaks with authority, he demonstrates authority in casting out demons, in healing the sick, in calming the storm. The winds and the waves obey him and by raising the dead. And then we've come to Matthew 10. We've been walking through it for the past few weeks. And as we've been walking through Matthew, notice, we're discovering along the way, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we maybe have thought we're so familiar with, but we're seeing these new glorious things about him and we've been seeing what does it mean to follow him? We've got to hear it from the horse's mouth. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does Jesus say it means to be his disciple? And when we've come to Matthew 10, we see a new incredible development that notice Jesus taking a very long time to unroll before us. And we've seen that development is to follow Jesus doesn't just mean we are passive observers of him accomplishing the mission of God, but rather if we follow Jesus, we join in the mission of God. The mission that the Son of God is on, the mission of redemption through him, we join and become participants of. We'll see in the first beginning of the verse today behold i am sending you we see similar in john 17:18 as you father jesus praying to the father sent me into the world so i am sending my disciples into the world in the same way john 3:16 god so loved the world the father so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to redeem the world. He sent his son to the manger and then eventually to the cross. The son is sending you into that same world to tell everyone of the cross. Could there be anything more sobering? You're called to be an active participant in the mission of missions, proclaiming the worth of the king of kings, declaring the lordship, of the Lord of Lords. Could there be anything more life-defining? That's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10. You wanna know what it's like, what it means to follow me? You're not just gonna sit there and learn from me, you're gonna pick up your cross and follow me. And so he's spending quite some time unfolding this because it's such a vital core to the disciples identity, to the Christian's identity. And so in Matthew 10, one of the tricky things, Lee, I think, did a good job uh, showing us this. One of the tricky things is he is uh, prepping the 12 in front of him, but he's also prepping us in a way. And so it's difficult because you don't, don't take it one to one, but then like Lee said, you, don't, you also don't take it one to none or one to zero. He said it, whichever one was, I said it to you earlier this week and you corrected me because I didn't say it as Smoothly as you. Goodness. Uh, Right. So he's saying things that are going to be true of these 12 men, but then also things that are going to happen later in the book of Acts and also things that are going to happen later in their lives. Lee, I love you. I'm tired. And I lash out at those who I love when I'm tired. Um, And what this is, uh, biblical scholars will call this kind of this kind of prophetic speech There's a term called telescoping. So it's this idea of you're looking with a telescope. Imagine you're looking at a mountain range. And when you look, you know, everybody's looked at a mountain range through a telescope. As you look, the peaks look like they're right there. right? They're right on top of each other. As you gaze, you see, and it looks like they're, they're right there. But if you were actually travel to those mountain peaks, there might be a massive valley in between. And so you see this in the Old Testament. Israel goes into exile in Babylon, and the prophet will show up and say, after 70 years, don't worry, God's going to bring you back. There's peak number one. And when he brings you back, he's going to change your heart, and he's going to write his law on your heart. It looks like it's kind of the same thing. It's just said as if it's one event, but we know one happens to Israel when Persia destroys Babylon. The other happens after the cross, after the resurrection, after the sending of the Spirit in Acts 2. You see that? And so similar here in Matthew 10, there's going to be some of those things, things that will be applicable to the 12 sitting there and things that will come later in the book of Acts and some things that are true of us today. So I'm attempting today to preach it in a way where we don't make the one-to-one mistake, but also don't make the one-to-none mistake. So we see as Jesus is walking through this new reality, you follow me, you join my mission, calls the 12, sends out the 12, what he's going to talk about today is in that sending, you will encounter suffering and persecution and pain. I am not sending you out on an easy, painless mission. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. If you follow me, this mission that I'm on that you're following is one of great suffering and pain. So we'll see four things today. You're like, what? A long intro and four things? This is going to be a long sermon, and you might be right. Four things. The pain of his mission, the purpose and the power of his mission. Yes, they all start with P. The privilege of his mission and how we prepare for his mission. The pain of his mission the purpose and the power of his mission, the privilege of his mission and preparing, how we prepare for his mission. So let's look at the difficult one. Let's dive in and look at the pain of his mission. Verse 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as So right after he's called them and he's begun to give them kind of instructions that we've seen over the past few weeks, now he's saying this mission will be hard. There will be persecution and it will be painful. Why? The reality of the world, particularly the reality of humanity in the world, is that we are God's creation in utter rebellion. To the core of man's being, what our hearts scream most is, I don't want God to be the God of my own life. I want to be the God of my own life. I do not want him to tell me what is good and what is evil. I will decide, thank you very much, what is good and what is evil. I want to be like God, which is to say, I would like to dethrone him and be my own God, nobody tells me what to do. I decide for myself what to do. That is the core of sin that every other sin flows out from. I'm God of my own life. And so anything that threatens that, rebellious man will not react kindly to. So to join the mission of God where you show up and you say, bow the knee to King Jesus, will not be received gently. There will be a violent reaction from the wicked heart of man. Jesus says it will be like sheep among wolves. And because this is the reality, you need to behave a certain way. Right? Be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Serpents were known as being wise because they'll you know hide from you know, threatening things. Even the devil gets a compliment in Genesis 3. He was crafty craftier than all the other animals, so be crafty, be wise, Jesus says, as you navigate this really, really difficult, painful world, but don't be crafty in the way the serpent was crafty. Be wise, but be innocent. Be wise, but don't be sketchy. Be wise, but be pure in heart. Doves were thought to be just gentle and innocent. How does the Holy Spirit appear when he comes down at Jesus' baptism? As a dove, because they're thought to be Pure and gentle. So go out, be wise, be shrewd, but be righteous in doing so. And then Jesus goes on to give us details. He doesn't just say it's going to be hard and leave it there. He gives you details, gives us details of the types of persecution we can expect to face as we go out. Look at verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. So you see social persecution, right? They'll deliver you over to the courts. There's this idea of you might lose your job. You'll be arrested and taken to court. You might go to jail. You're most likely not gonna be looked upon with any favor from society. You'll be the social pariahs in a lot of people's minds, but it doesn't just stop at social persecution. There's physical persecution. You'll be flogged. You'll be... Beaten. You can't read the book of Acts, the story of the gospel going out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth without seeing physical beating. You can't read a missionary biography without seeing assaults and murder attempts and martyrdom itself, an attempt to shut the mouth of the minister who is going and saying, Jesus is king. You go out, you say that to a rebellious world, they will react violently, physically, violently. And if those two things weren't bad enough, Jesus, in my opinion, goes to uh, the depths of pain, the worst possible pain, which is family pain. Look at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, not just beating or jail, death, and father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. Those who are closest to you, those who you've put your trust in, those who you say, they've got my back, right? They would never betray me, are the very ones that will be persecuting you to the ultimate persecution, to death. Siblings will deliver you over to death and take over your family, your children, the ones that you pour your whole life into will rise up against you and deliver you over to death. I can't imagine a worse pain than that. There's a real common fear-mongering tactic in our day, which just goes like this. The government's coming for your kids, or the LGBTQ plus community's coming for your kids, and it's a a way to get you to vote a certain way or to school your kids a certain way. It's meant to scare you, motivate you by fear. Jesus here says your kids are coming for you. This isn't, you know... Like the doctors ask you, this isn't a seven on the scale of ten. What's the pain like? It's bad, but I, I think I can make it. This is unimaginable pain. This goes to the depths of pain. Jesus saying very clearly, you follow me, that means you join my mission. And if you join my mission, you will encounter great pain. You want to follow me as I carry my cross? You pick up your cross, and follow me. And lest you think this is just an isolated chapter, like Jesus is having a bad day, you can't find a book in the New Testament that doesn't scream the same thing. 1 Timothy, I don't think, has anything about persecution, but don't worry, 2 Timothy has like all the stuff about persecution. Listen to Peter writing to the churches in 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you when persecution sweeps into your life and everything you knew is turned upside down and it's misery all the time don't act like that's a surprising thing if you're following Jesus as though something strange were happening to you 2 Timothy 3:12 you want a comprehensive statement indeed All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's Paul in his dying days preparing Timothy. You want to be godly? You can expect one thing persecution, pain. If you call him king, if you try and advance his kingdom, the rebellious devil-ruled world will painfully resist your efforts. So, set your expectations rightly. Do not expect love from this world. Set your expectations like verse 22. You will be hated by all for my namesake. And again, One of the reasons why we preach from the scriptures is we want our view of God and our view of what does it mean to be his people to be shaped by him. So if you have some other version of Christianity, you did not get that from Jesus. There's a reason why prosperity gospel preachers never preach from the Bible. They can't. The false gospel that Jesus came to make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous. You can't preach that and read two seconds of Jesus' actual words that says quite literally the exact opposite. You want to follow me? You want to come to me? Your life will get much worse, perhaps unimaginably worse. Or perhaps something more relevant to this room. If your version of Christianity is incredibly comfortable. It allows for profound complacency. It asks very little of you other than ask Jesus to come into your heart, be moral, be conservative, and come to church, be involved. You did not get that from Jesus. I don't know where you got it from, but not from his mouth. He's being very clear and very upfront with us about what it will look like, about the painful reality of following him and joining his mission in a rebellious, devil-ruled world. You will suffer. It will be painful for his namesake. That's point number one. How's everybody feeling, right? Now, look at me. He could leave it there. He's the king of the universe, He could leave it there. He has all the right to say, I rule the world. You know that heart keeping you alive? I keep it beating. Go do what I say. He can say that. He has every right to say that, and we have no right to say, that's mean. His response would be, I made you from dirt and breathed life into you. He could leave it here. It's going to be painful. Go. Is that where he leaves it? Is that the heart that we've seen on display as we've been looking at Jesus all throughout Matthew? Is that the heart of the one that eats with tax collectors and sinners? Is that the heart of the one who stops and turns and encourages the lowly and the forgotten? Is that the heart of the one who reaches out and touches the diseased he could leave it there, but does the good shepherd leave it there? No. He certainly does not. The good shepherd says, it's going to be painful. By the way, that's a grace to you. He doesn't even have to tell you it's going to be painful. He can just send you amongst the wolves. He's preparing you. It's going to be painful, but he doesn't stop there. He takes time to encourage his disciples and to strengthen them. So that's the next thing we're going to see, the purpose and the power of joining his mission. Look at verse 17. They will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be dragged before the governors and the kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Verse 22, skip down. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So as he is warning us about the pain of joining his mission, he also says, all of this pain, all of your suffering will not be pointless. It will not be random. It will not be an accident. In fact, it has a glorious purpose behind it. It is for the purpose of bearing witness to the name above all names, to a lost world that doesn't know him. The purpose behind... Your pain is to bear witness to his glorious name. Everyone in this room, and I imagine everyone in the world, will sacrifice things from their life for a worthy cause, what we typically call a worthy cause. Right? You'll give money to build schools in an impoverished nation, right? or you'll give sleep to help raise an infant. I don't know why that's on my mind. but right? You will sacrifice for a good Cause right, Nathan Hale, this goes to the very core of our country. Nathan Hale, who uh, was a patriot during the Revolutionary War, has one of the most famous quotes. He was a spy, and he went to go spy on the British troops, and apparently he was bad at it because he got caught. And uh, before he was hung to death, killed by the Brits, he said, the famous quote that's kind of lasted throughout the years and encapsulates the American spirit, I only regret that I have one life to give. For my country. The cause of America is so great, I gladly give this life, and I wish I had more to keep giving for the sake of America. And here, Jesus is saying, That's great. There are worthy causes, but they will one day all fade away except one. There's one cause that lasts into eternity, there's one name that will never be forgotten and will last into all eternity, and that's my name. Your suffering, the pain you're going through, is for the cause of all causes. It has the ultimate purpose behind it, showing you the greatest cause, a witness to the glory of the name above all names, why did God say, Let there be light? God is perfectly happy in the fellowship of His Son and His Spirit in Genesis zero. From eternity past, God has not needed a thing from us. He is totally satisfied in the fellowship of His Son. Why does He say, Let there be light? Because He is so glorious. It just overflows into creation so that everything on the other side of let there be light might turn back around and praise his glorious name. You and I exist so that the world might be covered with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. What's the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. The praise of his name is the ultimate reason why the universe exists. And here we see it's the ultimate purpose of the mission of God. And it's where history ends, by the way. That's where we're all going in this great mission. Philippians 2, Paul says this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name. And so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Why are we going through this persecution? Why are we suffering the way we are? Why is there so much pain in this mission for the ultimate purpose of praising his glorious Name. The way you endure suffering for his namesake declares his ultimate glory. You are persecuted, as Jesus says, for my namesake to bear witness before them, before the watching world. For the first two centuries of the church, what's often just called the early church, kind of the summary statement of the first couple centuries, uh, the church in the Roman world in particular was persecuted a lot. They were socially persecuted. Like Jesus says, there was rumors that they were incestuous because they would gather together like this and they called each other brother and sister. And so the watching world was like, I don't know what's going on in there. It's not great. They were called cannibals. Because they talked about eating uh, the body of Christ and drinking his blood. And they were also known for adopting. In the Roman world, if you didn't like your baby or there was a deformity, you just throw it outside the city. And Christians were known for flooding the streets and taking unwanted babies and adopting them. So they would bring them into their gatherings and raise them and teach them the ways of the Lord. And so, the, again, the onlooking world was like, I think they're eating those babies. Right? They're really, really weird. But social persecution, they were Hated, right? They were called atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods, ironically. Incredible social persecution and incredible physical persecution. They were beaten. They were killed often. We have so many martyrdom stories. And the way they endured, they responded not how we typically respond today by just railing against you know government overreach or getting mad at the lost world for not having Christian values and things like that. Rather... They responded when they were insulted, they blessed because they knew they could be patient with the lost world because Jesus had been very, very patient with them. When there was plagues and people were even leaving their own family members because they didn't want to get the disease and die, Christians flooded the streets to care for those, many of them dying in the process, but they knew there's a resurrection on the other side of this. I have eternal life after this. How can I not act like Christ and care for the needy? And when they were killed, they cried out as they're being stoned and they cried out on their crosses and they cried out as they were being burnt at the stake. Father, forgive them. They loved their enemies, and they prayed for those who persecuted them. And as a result, Christianity in the early church spread like wildfire long before Constantine ever became emperor and declared Rome a Christian nation. In fact, most early church scholars say Constantine knew he was just kind of backing the winning horse because it was spreading so quickly. Why? Their witness to his glorious name in the midst of incredible suffering? That's what praised his glorious name. Every martyrdom story has some paragraph at the end of it of how many were saved as a result of watching someone burn to death and cry out for God to forgive their persecutors. The way they suffered declared something about his name that made the hate-filled, onlooking world say, there's something there that I want to know. And it spread as a result. And that's what Jesus is saying here. When this happens to you, it's to declare and give a witness for my glorious name. But you're not only praising his name and doing it, you're not only showing how worthy he is. Ironically, the very persecution that's meant to stomp out the spread of his name that's meant to stomp out the gospel is the means by which it spreads. As persecution tries to shut the mouth, it only makes it louder. It happens all throughout church history. Look at verse 23. Jesus saying, when you are persecuted in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. In the book of Acts, how does the gospel get from Jerusalem, where it starts with the 12 disciples, these 12 men listening, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? I'll tell you how, Acts 8. And there arose that day a great persecution Pain in this mission of God against the church in in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. A couple verses down, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Go read one of Paul's missionary journeys. He gets sent from Philippi to Thessalonica to Athens to Corinth because people are running him out of town. The gospel spreads all over the world through the very persecution that's meant to stop it it's like god's ultimate judo move right it's coming at you and he just i don't know how judo works i just assume that's how it goes i mean just think about it for 2 seconds how did the gospel get from 11 men in jerusalem 2000 years ago to your heart how did it get to McKinney Texas how did it cross the atlantic suffering Do you know how many men died so that you could have the Bible sitting in your lap in English? So that you could hear from God's word anytime you wanted to open its pages. You know how much blood of martyrs has soaked English translations? You don't have to go here from a Catholic priest reading in Latin. Suffering pushes out the glorious gospel and spreads his glorious name. God uses Weak, foolish things to shame the strong. So Jesus is telling us when persecution comes, don't cower. Don't be disheartened in this painful persecution. There is a glorious purpose, the ultimate purpose behind it, the spread of the name above all names. But that's not all. That's just piece one of the comfort to his people. What's the second? Verse 19, we see the power that is behind this painful mission. Verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So, when this tidal wave of persecution overcomes you, overwhelms you, and you finally have this chance to give a witness it will not be up to your charisma. It will not be up to your ability to kind of get it together and think through, okay, God, man, Christ, response. What's the, it will not be up to your ability to articulate God would never hang the hopes of the world on our weak abilities, our jar of clay abilities. Rather, it will be God speaking through you. Or to say it another way, God is the power to accomplish God's mission. Now, the quick clarifier, this is, Jesus, this is not Jesus saying, don't prepare ever, right? I made a joke with our elders that in honor of this passage, I didn't prepare at all for this sermon, so I was just gonna let the spirit speak, right? That is not what Jesus is saying by any means. Rather, he's saying the ultimate one who's speaking, when you see the gospel going forth from your dying breaths and you think, what am I doing? The ultimate way in which hearts are being transformed is because the power of God is working through you. Acts 1 the beginning of the book of the spread of the gospel you will receive power Jesus says to his disciples when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth 1 Thessalonians 2:13 Paul speaking to the Thessalonican church and when and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so Paul, Timothy, go into Thessalonica, they preach the gospel, Thessalonicans receive it, you accepted it, not as a word of men, not as, oh, Paul, you've got some good thoughts about eternity and salvation, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So when you open your mouth, And you proclaim the gospel, as messy as it is, as unkempt as you might be in the midst of it, the ultimate power going forth is not up to you, but the power of the living God of the universe. God gives the power to accomplish his mission. And by the way, this is always how God works through his servants. We have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. How does Moses go and accomplish the kind of mission of the Old Testament? The first kind of great mission call we see is Exodus. The burning bush, God shows up to Moses and says, go tell the most powerful king in the world, Pharaoh, let my people go. Let his slaves go. And Moses responds like this in Exodus 4.10. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Here's God's response. I'm not good at it. I don't think you picked the all-star you thought you were picking, right? There's, I'm sure, other Michael Jordans or Lionel Messies uh, who could right, accomplish this, but I, 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 I stutter. What does God say? Then the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, The Lord. Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth. So as you witness, let this just, again, frame a couple things. Unbelievable confidence. That it's not up to your skill, but up to the power of the one who said, let there be light. Which, by the way, this means he gets all the glory. If someone gets saved, you're like, all right, I'm good at this, right? And you take on the pride. He still gets all the glory, and uh, by the way, this means you can sleep at night. You pour your life out, you faithfully minister the gospel and people reject it, you can go to bed knowing that God is the ultimate one in control and he has not hung the hopes of his church on you. You can rest knowing that he's the one that will ultimately bring it. And then lastly, let this, this is a bit of a sidebar, let this change how you walk in this room on Sunday. You are not coming to hear some preacher string together some thoughts about the Bible. So long as the preacher here behind this music stand pulpit preaches the word, you're coming to hear the word of the Lord. You're coming to hear from God. That should change the way you walk in those doors. Not what are Jared's thoughts on Matthew 10, but the God of the universe who spoke all things into being is about to speak. That'll change the way you view gathering before our holy God and hearing from his holy word. So Jesus is saying there's an ultimate purpose. It's hard. There's persecution. There's suffering. But there's a purpose behind it and there's a power in it that even though you're sheep among wolves, you can be confident that God is at work and God is working through you. But there's one more thing. Lastly, he says, purpose in it, power in it, and there is salvation on the other side of it. Look at verse 21. Brother will deliver up brother over to death, and father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is not Jesus making an if then statement. If you endure, you'll be saved. You'll earn your salvation by your white knuckling endurance of suffering. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying there's something on the other side of this persecution that will give you the strength to endure. Florence Chadwick was a, the first woman to swim the English Channel. And in uh, the 50s, she tried to swim from Catalina Island to mainland California. It's 26 miles. And so she got in uh, the water. She was surrounded by boats to watch for sharks and make sure she didn't drown. Uh, and there was a really thick fog and she, she, she swam for 15 hours and wanted to quit. I don't know why, but wanted to quit. She's just swimming. She can't see. There's thick fog. She doesn't know how close am I. And she wanted to quit. And she finally does quit and gets in the boat and realizes as she gets in the boat that she was a half mile from the shore. And in a press conference after, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think... If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And two months later, she tried again, and she did make it. Again, on another very thick fog day And in the press conference, after the successful attempt, she said, I kept in my mind the entire time I swam a mental image of the shoreline. As she swam and couldn't see, she kept a mental image of the shoreline. Do you see here what your good, gracious shepherd is doing for you. As you suffer and all you can see is fog, he here is giving you a mental image of the shoreline of salvation. You will run this painful race. You will perhaps endure unthinkable persecutions, and then you will fall into my arms, and I will wipe away your tears, and I will make all things new. How does Paul endure suffering? Here's Paul's list of sufferings. He went through incredible sufferings. He gives us, uh, not exhausted, but a list in 2 Corinthians 11. Here's Paul's thick fog. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. So that beating that Jesus promises here in Matthew 10, Paul gets it five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. So another type of beating. Once I was stoned Three times I was shipwrecked a day or a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger of river, rivers, in danger of robbers, in danger of my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardships through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst Often, without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all other things, there's the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. Any one of us endure one of this list, and it would be the worst thing we've ever gone through He has all of this. So how does he endure this? How does he describe this incredible list of sufferings for Jesus' sake? Romans 8:18. 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that list, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. What's the mental image Paul has in his mind? The glory, the shoreline of salvation. And notice he didn't say, suffering's hard, salvation's a little bit better, so it's worth it. He says, it is not worth comparing the glory that's on the other side. 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction, five times being beaten like that, light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are Eternal, On the other side of this suffering, Jesus is saying, there's a salvation so sweet with me and so glorious with me, it will make all the worst suffering seem like a scratch. It won't be worth comparing. There's an English reformer named John Bradford, who uh, during Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, she's the one that has the famous drink named after her because she killed a whole bunch of preachers. Uh, So think about that next time you drink a Bloody Mary. Uh, She uh, killed a whole bunch of Protestant preachers, people who were preaching the gospel, justification by faith, were saved not by our own works, but by the glorious Savior who came and lived the perfect life that I couldn't live completely by grace. All those preachers she wanted killed and one of them was John Bradford and he was being tied to the stake with a fellow reformer named John Leaf, and as they were about to be burned, he turned to John Leaf, his friend, and said, "'Be of good comfort, brother, "'for we will tonight have a merry supper with the Lord. "'On the other side of these flames "'is a glorious feast with our God, "'so be of good comfort.'" He's got the shoreline in mind. He's got things unseen that he's working, looking at, and that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Before you enter persecution, I want you to know what you're looking for in the same way he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So Jesus is showing us in this pain, there's purpose and there's power and there's salvation. There is a merry supper with him on the other side. One more piece of preparation. We got to move a bit quicker the privilege of his mission. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So the last piece of preparation is kind of like a summary statement that we've we've kind of seen before. And it's this reality if you follow him. You want to be united to him. What's true of him will be true of you. If they hated him, if they persecute him, if they insult him, if they try to kill him, if they do kill him, they're never going to treat his people any better than they treated him. So there's this sense in which uh, Jesus is again kind of rightly giving us expectations. Don't expect love from this world. If you want to identify yourself with me, expect the same hatred I get. But he's also introducing something here that is a massive theme all throughout the New Testament, which is persecution for his namesake reveals that you are like him. Persecution for his namesake reveals that you're his. And that fact is so glorious that it's an occasion for joy. Let me just read you a whole bunch of New Testament passages centered on this theme. 1 Peter 4, 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you... Meet trials of various kinds. Philippians 1:29. Look how Paul phrases this. For it has been granted to you. Like it's a gift. It has been granted to you. Like you asked for it. Granted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh... I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And then my favorite, Acts 5. The gospel is spreading. The disciples are arrested and beaten and told, shut your mouth about this Jesus guy. And here's the reaction to this severe beating that Jesus promised in Matthew 10. They left the presence of the council rejoicing, that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They dishonored him, they beat him, and they dishonored us. We're like him. His stamp is on us. This is an occasion for great joy. Persecution for his sake is a privilege because he is so glorious. And being united to him is so wonderful. And so the final question for us, as we look at this disheartening, don't worry, Lee's going to encourage you next week with Jesus saying, don't fear, right? The final question for us is, what if you're not there? What if you're like, okay, that's great for Paul, and that's great for the apostles, and that's great for these great martyrs, but I don't have a love for him like that, that would allow me to endure such things. And if I did, I would do it cowering, wouldn't do it praising God as my back is, Bleeding? How do you get there? What am I supposed to do if we're not on this side of persecution yet? We're waiting for it. Maybe it's coming. We live some of the most privileged lives in all of church history. What are we going to do? How do we prepare for this sort of persecution? And the answer is probably far more simple than you realize. And it's just to come and meet the one whose name you're suffering for. Come gaze and spend time with the one whose name your life is given over for. Come meet the one you're on mission for. Taste and see of his goodness. Let his beauty and glory saturate your heart one of my favorite stories, as Jesus is calling the disciples in the Gospel of John, is Nathanael under a fig tree, and his buddy Philip runs over and says, we found the Messiah, we found the one we've been waiting for, and Nathanael says, where's he from? And Philip says, Nazareth, and Nathanael says, nah, what good can come out of Nazareth? And Philip doesn't say, well, no, he's actually from the line of David, he doesn't give him some sort of rational argument, he doesn't say, well, you know, all these promises are going to be fulfilled in him, he just says... Come and see. You're doubting right now, Nathaniel. You want to know how he's the Messiah? Come and see. Come and gaze. Come and taste and see. What is it that sends Isaiah out into the very painful mission of God to proclaim to rebellious Israel that they need to turn back to God that would eventually cost him his life? Isaiah 6, he gets a glimpse of God's glory and sees the seraphim flying around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then he says, here am I, send me. Not as a kind of, I think I'm the man for the job. Mission impossible. I think I can do it. What he's saying is, I've just gotten a glimpse of the one who all things are made to praise. What else can I do but go? What transforms Paul from being the biggest persecutor of the church, the one most motivated to stop the spread of the gospel to its greatest missionary? He gets a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. He comes and sees his glory, and he's changed forever. All of a sudden, he's the man who says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, they came and met him. Anyone who truly meets him will not be able to help but give their lives to him. So how do we do that? You don't have to go to the Damascus Road. I don't even know where that is. I'm sure it's still out there. You don't have to go to the tabernacle. You can look with the eyes of faith and go meet him in his word. Go read Genesis 1. And don't think about the Big Bang and atheist debates. And don't think about creation debates and how old the earth is. Just let the truth of it saturate your heart. All things were made by the God who is your Father. Every tree finds its way back to Genesis 1. The bright stars find their way back to Genesis 1. There's nowhere your eyes can look in all of creation that doesn't lead you back to the beautiful creation hand of your God. Go pray to him knowing the truth that he hears you. There's never a time where his eyes aren't fixed on you. There's no pain you're walking through that he doesn't know even more intimately than you do and ask him to fix your gaze on him. Meditate on who he is. When you fail, meditate on the reality that he doesn't repulse. Oh, I wish he would perform and do better. He moves towards you with compassion as we've seen him over and over and over again in Matthew. Meditate on the reality that in your greatest failure, he's gentle and he's lowly and he's so patient with you and your foolishness. Meditate on the reality of the gospel, your salvation, that the same love that the Father has been pouring out on the Son for all of eternity because you've been brought to his Son and you can call him Abba, Father. That same love is poured out on you. That the wrath that hung above your head, the cup of God's wrath that would be poured out on you for all of eternity, he took and he drank. Spend time gazing. Think about your guaranteed eternity the shoreline, there is no pain you will experience so small or so big that he won't undo, that he won't turn somehow for good. Meditate, take time, think about the reality that your greatest day here will not compare to your worst day in eternity, that every bite of food at his table will be better Then the last, and though now you see with the eyes of faith, one day you'll see with the eyes of sight. You'll actually see the shoreline. You won't have to have the mental image anymore. We will see his face, and we will never look away. You could do that. You could do that today you could do that tomorrow and you could do it every day for the rest of your life until your heart is actually saturated with him and you can say like Paul it's not worth comparing to the glory that will come in the merry supper that we will have with our lord on the other side of this suffering robert murray mcshane uh, one of my favorite Scottish pastors told one of his friends who was training for ministry, the best way you can prepare to minister to your people is in the morning when you wake up, never see the face of man before you see his face, who is our life, our all. Go meet with him, gaze upon him, and gazing at him will force you out into his mission because his goodness and his glory must be shared McShane again told this people this. I've read you guys this quote before. Oh, dear souls, if you got but a glimpse, like Isaiah or like Paul of the beauty of Jesus, you would leave all and follow him. If you got but a taste of the sweetness of forgiveness, you would count everything else, but loss for the excellencies of knowing Christ. Oh, pray that you be made willing to leave all for Christ. He is kinder than father or mother, more precious than son or daughter. Take up your cross then and follow him. You want to prepare for going on the painful mission. Start by gazing at him. Come and see. Come and meet the one that you will joyfully go for. And when you actually meet him, When you actually taste and see of his sweetness, you will, like Paul say, it's not worth comparing to the glory that will come. Let's pray. Father, again, we just lay ourselves at your feet. That's what prayer is. We're just begging you to intervene because apart from your glorious hand, There's nothing here but a motivational speech. Man cannot change his heart. We need you to do that for us. This might be a long road, but we pray that you would fix our eyes on the glory of your Son, that you would rightly, in our minds, show us why we exist, and that is so that his name might go forth and be praised And no matter the opposition or the pain or the suffering, we would joyfully endure because it points to the reality that we're his. It points to the glorious purpose of his mission and let us have the confidence that you're actually the one who equips us for this. It's not up to our skill. It's up to your power and you've given it in sending your spirit to compel the gospel forth. So I pray that you would do that in our hearts first. And that we as a people, we as the Parkway Church, wouldn't be marked by anything else other than we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that love is what pushes us forth into the world to declare his glorious name no matter the cost. Please do that in our hearts, Father. In the name of your glorious Son, the name above all names, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.